Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A number of years ago, I used to teach public speaking. And one of the most important elements that I would always tell my students was that of introductions. This is your chance to captivate your audience early on. And so I would ask them, think about it. What makes an effective introduction? And then I would say, all right, let's think about what are some good ideas for an effective introduction to a speech. And inevitably, a hand would go up in the classroom. And the answer that I hoped wouldn't come usually was the first one. And that was a rhetorical question. I always cringed. A rhetorical question doesn't seem like it would be a good introduction, does it? And why isn't that? That was a joke. See, there were questions there. <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> a rhetorical question is a question that is posed for the listeners, but an answer isn't really expected to be voiced orally. And in fact, most of the time, the answer is understood, or it's so extreme that everybody here knows the answer. Preachers actually use them a lot if you pay attention to the sermons because we find that it can help with transitions, moving from one idea to another. In fact, I once heard how a rhetorical question backfired on a pastor. One Sunday, the preacher was in the middle of a sermon, and he was posing a number of rhetorical questions over and over again. He would say, what is the answer to this problem? And he'd say again, what is the answer to this problem? And after a number of repetitions, finally, in the, a little boy in the second row blurts out, I give up, pastor. You tell us the answer. Now, rhetorical questions aren't overly helpful. They definitely are not effective attention getters, especially in a sermon. And yet Jesus used questions, even rhetorical questions, often. Are grapes gathered from thorns? Are figs gathered from thistles, from Matthew 7? Should you give someone a stone when she asks for bread? Is it right to light a lamp and then hide it under a bush? Some of the many questions that Jesus asked. And these rhetorical questions have obvious answers. The obvious answers to most of these questions that Jesus asked was no. But sometimes rhetorical questions don't expect an answer because the answers are not quite so clear. A rhetorical question sometimes poses an impossible question that just doesn't have any definite answer. And I find that Christianity itself is a faith that offers many, many rhetorical questions, the kind that are impossible questions with no definitive answers. Questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Where is God when there is so much evil in this world? Why doesn't God to see, seem to answer my prayers? How can Jesus be both fully divine and yet fully human? And Jesus even posed some of these most difficult questions to his followers. 
What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit her life? How on earth are we to answer this kind of question? As a pastor, I find that while I went to seminary in hopes of finding answers to many of my biggest questions of faith, I ended up finding more questions and fewer answers. I remember a few years ago having one of my many theological debates with my grandmother. She and I were sitting in her living room, just the two of us, and as often was the case when the two of us were together, we were engaging in deep theological talk. And we were talking about this very issue, the questions of faith that seemed so impossible to answer. And I announced boldly to Grandma that God better get ready, because when I get to heaven, I've got a whole list of questions for God, and I'm going to start asking away, and I'm going to expect some answers. Now, part of being a Christian is hoping that we find answers to our questions of faith. We hope that when we come to church or Sunday school or a Bible study, that maybe we will now have some greater insight into the difficult questions of life, at least more than what we did before. William Willimon says that through answers to these impossible, open-ended questions, we resolve the anxiety that comes upon us through tough questions, like, is my life as I'm living it really worth living? Does God really know me and care about me? And what about eternity and my place in it? Willimon said, I think this is one of the main reasons why lots of people have difficulty with the Bible. They go to the Bible, expecting it to be full of answers, and find instead there a book, or actually a number of books, that, raises more, that raise more questions than it answers. Sometimes we realize that the best sermons or the best class sessions that we come across or the best books that we read actually pose more questions than answers when we're done. They invite us to ponder more. They invite good Sunday dinner conversation. They invite sleepless nights thinking about the book well after it was finished. They invite us to look more deeply into something, to explore new possibilities. And in fact, some of the best rabbis and best, cult- best teachers from the Middle Eastern culture would ask lots of questions. Rarely did they give the answers. You see, they thought it was more of a compliment to their audience if they raised questions and didn't just give them answers. But by giving them the compliment as though they were intelligent enough, they would just pose a number of questions over and over again. And we often see this style of teaching in Jesus, that he would ask a lot of questions, some rhetorical, and at times, some difficult. And so when I announced to my grandma during that theological debate of ours that I had lots of questions for God and I couldn't wait to find out the answer, grandma looked at me quietly and smiled. And she said, oh, Susan, you better be careful. And she went on to quote, without even looking it up in her Bible, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, 
you will be condemned. I shrugged off grandma's words, thinking she was just too comfortable in her faith. She should actually ask more questions and be more brave with God. You see, I want to believe in a God that allows me to ask the tough questions of faith, to be willing to wrestle with me about the tough questions of life that we all encounter, and not just make me accept the quick, pat answers without fully understanding them. I'm, in fact, okay with living a life that's full of questions, realizing that I may not get all the answers. It seems to me that God, after all, created this incredibly complex, complicated world for us to ask difficult questions, because surely God must be as complex as the world that God created. And so I like to ask God questions, tough questions, to help explore the various aspects of the mystery of faith. But today's passage from Matthew isn't a list of questions that the disciples were, were peppering Jesus with, wondering about God and all those questions of faith. Today, we find Jesus asking his disciples two questions. Two very direct questions, not rhetorical questions, but questions for which he wanted an answer. The first question, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Now, this wasn't a tough question for his disciples to answer. They were accustomed to being around Jesus and therefore being around the crowds that were with Jesus. They had heard all the rumors. They had heard the mumbling. They had heard people say, who is this man? And where does he get such authority to conduct miracles? And where does his authority to preach from? They had heard both the good and the bad from the people. And so they were ready. In fact, the question, this question that Jesus asked was also the very question that troubled Pilate. What do you have to say, Pilate said, when Jesus appeared before him at the time of the trial? What do you have to say about yourself and the charges against you? And so the disciples posed with this first question, who do people say that I am? They had lots of answers. Oh, some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And then somebody else would chime in. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Answers of who others had said were easy, and they pointed to heroes of the past. But I wonder if Jesus was slightly disappointed by these answers. Shouldn't people know at this point who he was? And perhaps the larger masses shouldn't necessarily know who Jesus was. But Jesus thought, at least my disciples the people who are spending time with me 24-7, my closest followers, should have more insight to who I am. And so Jesus kept pushing. He asked one more question. But who do you say that I am? Now I suspect there was some silence. The kind that happens when a personal question is asked And people aren't quite sure how best they should answer it. The sort of question that comes when somebody gets a dramatically changing haircut and they come up to you and say, how do you like my new haircut? 
Or the question of, do I look fat in these jeans? Or, do you love me? Will you marry me? Questions that you should think about before you answer them. But this question, the question that Jesus posed, is much, much more important even than all of those. And Jesus waited among the silence, and he listened. Who do you say that I am? And then finally, breaking the silence, much to the delight of the introverted disciples, was the extroverted Peter. The one who would have been voted by his high school graduating class as the one most likely to talk in moments of awkwardness. Peter, perhaps he was the only one who spoke at all, because this question was so much harder than the first one. Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, to stand up as an individual, like Peter did, from among the crowd of disciples, was to make a personal proclamation about him as an altogether different experience. Wow! Peter said, you are the Christ. It was like the answer to the million-dollar question, perfectly answered. Peter's confession here, which I found very interesting, is the only time that a character in the Gospel of Matthew will confess that Jesus is the Christ in a believing way and not in an accusatory or questioning way or derogatory way that was sometimes done. It's the only time that somebody says specifically, this is the Messiah. And so Jesus' response to Peter was huge. It's equivalent to the Old Testament when sometimes somebody who had been following closely to God would come forth with, with a proclamation of God and God would grant that person a blessing and then change his or her name, such as when Abram became Abraham and was given the blessing of descendants and when Jacob became Israel. And now Simon becomes Peter, the rock. Jesus' body Jesus' church will rest on this foundation, this solid rock. And the rock is not Peter's stability of character that sometimes we often think, but it is, in fact, I believe, his openness to the revelation that we see in verse 17 and the strength of his faith, his willingness to go out on a limb and make this proclamation of faith. And Peter's confession is an example of nonconformity to us. Jesus' reaction to Peter was based on the fact that Jesus understands how hard it is to say such things, to understand as humans that we don't always, we are not always able to see and feel and touch these things in a concrete way like we so much want to in the world. But what Peter said went beyond that, and he relied on a higher influence. He relied on faith that comes from God. And that is part of our calling as well. But then Jesus went on, and it's so confusing. He said, don't tell anybody that I am the Messiah. Here he was saying, what are people saying about me? Who am I? And then when they finally declare who he is, don't tell anyone. It's a secret. 
Well, I think that the reason Jesus said this was that the time hadn't come to yet announce Jesus' full identity to the world. Jesus had to first teach his disciples what the full meaning of messianic, of his messianic vision was. Peter's confession marks a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. It's from this point on that we see the disciples and Jesus taking on a new approach to the life of Jesus. And it begins with verse 21, where Jesus is now preparing for the events that will come in Jerusalem. And it's fascinating if you read in Matthew 16 and you read perhaps chapters 15 and even the verses that come before verse 13 in chapter 16. The book of Matthew, these chapters, are full of stories of belief and unbelief. This is when Peter wants to walk on the water. This is when the Sadducees are questioning Jesus. It's recognition and mistaken identification. It's response and rejection. It's all of these things confusing. But this story, the story that we heard read today, pulls together belief. It pulls together recognition. And is a response with one dramatic question and one answer. Perhaps, after all their doubts and all their questions, it was high time for the disciples to finally have another chance to have it all made clear to them, to understand correctly who indeed Jesus is and was. But I think that there really is no right answer to the question that Jesus posed. In some ways, does it really matter who Jesus is? Or does it matter more how we perceive Jesus? That's why chapters later, when Jesus was asked again by Pilate, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' answer was, You have said so. And when pressed harder by Pilate, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus made no reply. It didn't matter at that point what Jesus thought. It mattered what other people thought. So how would you answer the question that Jesus posed to the disciples? Jesus was an enigma to Pilate and to many during his time, and I think actually continues to be an enigma today. The answer to the question does not come through some deep philosophical understanding or solved as one might investigate a crime on law and order. It's only through faith in Jesus as Lord that we can begin to answer the question. But it goes against our grain that we have to have faith first before we can make this declaration. Martin Luther, who began the Protestant Reformation, said, I believe that I cannot, by my own understanding or effort, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel. For Martin Luther, and I believe for all of us, faith is in fact a gift from God. To be a Christian means to walk by faith. Faith that even when Jesus does not come up with straightforward, simple answers, or at least Jesus poses for us the very deepest and most important question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? William Willimon says, To be a person of faith is to be willing, 
not simply to put tough questions to God, but rather to let God question us. We can keep asking the big questions of God. In fact, sometimes I think it takes a lot of courage to ask the tough questions of this world. But we also must remember that while we can ask God the tough questions of the world, the most important question that we need to answer is the question that God poses to us through Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? Perhaps my grandma was right. Maybe I shouldn't be concerned with the questions that I have for God. Maybe I should be more worried about the questions that God has for me. Sue, who do you say that I am? Now that's a question worth pondering, worth answering. And it's not a rhetorical question. It's a question that requires an answer from all of us. We need to be ready to answer the question for ourselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? And once you've answered that question, be ready for the next question. What are you going to do about it? Amen.